I'd like us to read from Revelation chapter 1. Our text is going to be from Revelation 2, one of those sermons to the churches in Asia. But each one of those sermons references a part from the vision that John has of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. So the part that is going to be referenced to the church in Smyrna, I'd like to read from Revelation 1, verses 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, we're going to read together from Revelation chapter 2. If you uh, know a little bit of the, of the background, John is exiled for the faith on the island of Patmos, not too far off the coast uh, from where all of these seven churches uh, worshipped. Of course, there weren't just seven churches in, uh, in, in those days, probably around uh, 90 AD or so when this is being written. Uh, there were many others, but this is representative. These are real churches. And uh, John in, in exile, probably suffering uh, in exile, perhaps in uh, physical labor. Basically, he writes in kind of a clockwise version. Ephesus is the closest to, to the shore. Uh, from Patmos, and then just a little bit north is the city of Smyrna. So this is the message or the sermon that Jesus has for the church in Smyrna, and we're going to apply to us as well this afternoon. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's our reading from God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder this afternoon how much you could kind of preach on uh, the persecution in, around the world of our brothers and sisters in many different places. Uh, in our busy news feed, we can quickly kind of forget, especially in our relative um, safety and freedom, uh, forget what our brothers and sisters are experiencing, and you might once in a while uh, hear about persecution in the Middle East, uh, in, in China, and many countries in, in Africa. I remember hearing a story in Afghanistan where I think a couple of years ago at a conference, I heard a testimony from a, a few Christians, and they, there was no, they had difficulty finding any place to worship. They actually worshiped in a car driving around uh, Mosul. And that, that's, how, that's how they worship. They listen to CDs of, of uh, somebody preaching. They read the Bible together. They prayed as they were driving around the town because they were so much in, uh, in peril of being uh, arrested. And you, you do hear tales. It almost feels so foreign to our ears. This is not just 
It's not just what happened to Paul and, and the apostles and the early church, but uh, this is happening right now. Uh, the amount of martyrs you probably heard in the 21st century was more than all of the centuries uh, before that. And people are suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, about seven years ago, I went on a trip to India, and there was relative uh, freedom for Protestant uh, Reformed churches worshiping there. I preached in a couple of uh, pretty poor churches. They had rented space, of course. And soon after that, uh, at, least, at least one of those churches lost their, lost their rented space. A pastor and elders came to church one Sunday morning, and they were surrounded, actually, in a, in a very uh, threatening way by just a local crowd and, and really basically intimidated them out of, out of the lease that they had in, in that place. And Jesus told his disciples that they would suffer like, like he was suffering, that uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ was, was not going to be easy. I mean, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The cross, of course, was not a symbol of, of uh, life on the couch in front of the TV. It was, it was uh, going to be a life of, of suffering. Well, how about, how about us today in North America? Is there a price to be paid to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify uh, to be, to be a, a vocal witness that we believe in Christ, we're following Him, and actually to, to speak that and practice that uh, in, in the society that we find ourselves in today. Is it possible uh, anywhere you live to be a Christian and not suffer some form of uh, adversity, some level of persecution? And in, is there a... Is there a a really a way in which we must always be ready to suffer more intense persecution for the sake of, of our faith. There was a, a well-known uh, martyr in Smyrna. He's, he's not mentioned here because he actually lived later. He, he was uh, executed, burned at the stake in 155. You may have heard of him. He's a pretty famous martyr named Polycarp, and he was the bishop of Smyrna, and uh, he, he uh, served for many years in the church, was converted uh, later, later in life, but uh, he was eventually called before the magistrates and urged to give up his confession of Jesus Christ as the only way. There's no problem if you want to follow this Christ, but he can't be the only way. Just take a little incense, offer it up to Caesar, and we'll let you go. You know, confess that there are more than there's more than one God, that you're, and that your allegiance, in particular, is not to Jesus as Lord, as the only Lord, but also to Caesar as as Lord. Come on, many many other Christians are doing the same. Polycarp, and there uh, at his at his trial, knowing that this could lead to a conviction that would would move him to an execution, uh, he gave this brilliant test testimony of his faith and defense. At one point he said, 80 and 60 years, 80 and 6 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And it, looked like, it seemed like the, the authorities were looking to any way to, to keep from executing a, an 86-year-old man. The wild beasts are there. I'm going to throw you to them. And Polycarp said, send for them. I'm going to make you consumed by fire if you do not repent. Thou threatenest me with fire that burns for an hour and afterward is quenched. But you stand in danger of a fire that will never be quenched. And yeah, they 
they murdered uh, Polycarp at the stake, and yet he left uh, uh, a testimony that's reached us here in the, in, the, uh, in the 21st century. First, I've, I've been just collecting uh, or naming each, each sermon with one word. So the word in Ephesus was love. They were great at, at defending the faith theologically. They were great at dealing with heresy in the church, and they forgot to love. They forgot to love God above all, and they forgot to love one another. The word you might guess in, uh, in Smyrna is suffering. This church was known for its level intensity of suffering. First of all, we're going to look at how Jesus identifies himself to this church, which is really, really important because he brings up certain things that really fit with what the church is going through. And he, and he, he makes known to them right at the beginning, um, I'm here with you, here's who I am, you don't have any reason to fear. Then we'll look at how Jesus commends them, and I'm, I've been doing this with all seven churches, and then how Jesus uh, criticizes them, and then finally how Jesus speaks words of conviction and promise uh, to them as they continue to follow him. And our intent is to understand what was going on in Smyrta, but then also uh, gather some, some uh, application for, for our lives today. So first of all, Jesus Christ in, uh, in Smyrna. We read from chapter 1, and he borrows from that vision and from the self-identity of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 17 through 20. He calls himself the first and the last. That's another one of these phrases that Jesus takes upon himself that was, was only spoken of God the Father in the Old Testament. So you can look in Isaiah, a number of other passages uh, where he is called the first and the last. And this is not the first time, right? Where Jesus comes and identifies himself as God in the flesh. I mean, as, as true God. He, I, I myself, am the first and the last. The idea of God being eternal. There before the beginning of the world, and there into, uh, into eternity. And also something quite personal in terms of the first and the last. All, he's always been with his people. He's been planning this act of redemption uh, right from before the foundation of the world. I mean, right in the Garden of Eden when man falls, God comes after them. I'm there the first to the last. And the good work that God begins, he will, uh, he will fulfill. So, uh, brilliantly comforting words. I'm the one who's speaking to you. I'm the first and the last. People are dying. They're, being, uh, they're suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted, but the one who's the first and the last is on their side. And then he identifies himself as the one who died and, and came to life. Jesus suffering and dying on our behalf and uh, seemingly conquered uh, by the devil and the forces of evil, but alive. He died and came to life. And uh, there's this, this passage dealing with terrible suffering, what looks like a small band of disciples in the middle of this Roman world with all of their power and all of their threats and all of their violence and all of their religion. These are the conquerors. Jesus Christ and his people. The word for conquer, we'll see it a little later on too, is the word Nike. Uh, or f- Nike is from the, the Greek word for conquer. And uh, he is, he's the true conqueror. At the end, he, af- he uh, promises them you will not be hurt by the second death because he's the one who came back to life. He's the one who defeated death. So even in the moment of our death, 
or in concerns over the fact that we all face death, uh, we can have hope and confidence and assurance. And for, for the members of the church in Smyrna, even if you have to suffer all the way uh, to death itself, you can rejoice. Uh, Jesus said earlier in his ministry, rejoice when uh, men persecute you and revile you and say all manners of things against you and even all the way to death. For, uh, for so they persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ. So Smyrna, uh, Ephesus at the beginning, Laodicea at the end are the most compromising churches. God has the harshest things to say to those churches. They, they seem to be the churches with the most peace, the most freedom, uh, and, and yet they're the ones that are the most compromised. Smyrna and Philadelphia, uh, second and sixth, are the ones that are suffering, uh, but receive the most con- commendation uh, from God. And uh, success in the eyes of our Lord looks very different from how the world treats success. So that's Jesus Christ in Smyrna, words of comfort and encouragement. Secondly, let's look at how God, how Jesus commends them. What does he have to say uh, to commend them? Well, he knows uh, their tribulations, their poverty, uh, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of, of Satan. So, the members of this church had, were attacked from, from two, different, uh, two different places. They were in the middle. Um, on the one hand, they were not a protected religion. For a time, they were associated with the Jewish faith and kind of protected under the guise of being uh, uh, you know, followers of the Old Testament, uh, descendants of, of Abraham. But as the church grew and it became more and more, of course, committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the words of the apostles. Uh, the Jews no longer uh, wanted the Christians to associate with them and antagonized the church more and more. Paul, Paul himself, of course, dragged off members of churches and families to be, to be persecuted. Uh, so they're no longer protected, on the one hand, by the state. They're seen as a threat to the state. There are those who, again, worship Jesus Christ as, as King and Lord and refuse to bow down to the emperor. In every single city like Smyrna, you'd have altars, uh, temples to the emperor. is a big part of their life. And it wasn't just kind of a Sunday thing. Throughout the week, they would gather in these temples. They'd worship a bunch of different gods. But then they'd also offer up incense to Caesar. This was a part of uh, not just kind of your religious life, this was your civic duty. And so they see Christians who are unwilling to do this, and that's a threat to society. And you could just imagine that if that's a part of your regular civic, civil life, it's intertwined with your family, it's intertwined with the people you work with, it's intertwined with your career and calling, well, then you're going to get into trouble if you refuse to, uh, to offer. So you've got on the one hand the Roman government, opposing the Christian church more and more, and the church was growing. Uh, the church was not made up of just Jewish people, but also Gentiles from a lot of different places. And so it's, it's a growing threat. On the other hand, the Jews have also now become, uh, some of the synagogues have become also very antagonistic towards the church, looking to distance themselves from that movement that they, of course, reject because they reject Jesus as, as the Messiah. And how marvelous to receive this sermon where, where Jesus Christ himself 
sends this, this message to this church and says, I know what you're going through. When you're going through something difficult and, and someone enters into a conversation with you and you know that when they say they know what you're going through, uh, you know that they mean what they say. Like you know something about their history and something about their experience so that uh, their experience in some way matches yours. You go through, uh, you go through cancer and chemotherapy, uh, some folks in our church are going through right now, and, and uh, those who have, have suffered physically have gone through that level of medical intervention and how that affects you spiritually and, and mentally and, and physically can, can speak into, into that life. You've lost a loved one, uh, someone who has gone through that experience. It's not that we can't all comfort one another, but there's something where you can say, I know. Like you look them in the eye and say, I know. There's a heart meeting another heart, and there's, there's something deeper there. But to, to, have, to have the king of kings say, I know what you're going through. And this is not just... Jesus' knowledge. This is Jesus extending his arm uh, of friendship. This is Jesus, this is Jesus empathizing. Uh, this is Jesus understanding and entering into the experience of what they're going through. I, I told you, if you want to be my, my disciples, you're going to have to suffer. But I'm going to be with you throughout the in, entire uh, experience. This is, this is life transforming when you know that Jesus knows what you're going through. So these believers have suffered affliction just a couple of ways in which they've uh, suffered affliction. We find out that they're, they're, uh, they're poor. Their poverty. Uh, he notices their, their poverty. Uh, says, of course, they're rich because there's a different kind of treasure, biblically, but, but they, are, they are poor. Hebrews 10, speaking of persecution, uh, commends the, uh, the readers there, you suffered the loss of your possessions. And this was happening all over where people would come in when Christians would be taken to prison, fathers would be taken, and people would steal their possessions. And uh, this, this happened a number of times. They would come into the, the, the churches, places of worship, and steal, uh, steal their possessions there as well. It's, it's the idea that, that you are no longer an active, faithful member of our society. So, so you're, now, you're now worthy of, of rejection by the culture. And see how this is starting to sound a little bit familiar. For example, if you were... If you were part of the, uh, the farmer guild, so you're a farmer, you're growing vegetables, and to be a, to be a successful farmer not just meant, it didn't just mean that you grew good vegetables and you were an honest farmer and everything else, but it meant that you, you worshipped uh, the god Demeter, and you, offered, you faithfully offered sacrifices to the god Demeter. And so now these Christians come along, and they're great farmers, they're great people, uh, but they don't sacrifice to Demeter. I'm not sure if I want to buy vegetables from that guy, because maybe they're not blessed by the God. They're not blessed by the God, actually. Maybe I'll get sick. All this kind of suspicion, accusation. 
uh, led towards Christians losing their jobs, losing their possessions, losing the respect of the community. But they've also, they're also being slandered. And that's not surprising. Jesus, at his, uh, at his trial, witnesses were brought forward that slandered, slandered Jesus. Uh, in the book of Acts, you see over and over again all of these false testimonies brought against Peter and Silas and Paul and uh, the rest of, of the apostles and, and other, uh, other servants in, in the book of Acts. So false rumors, malicious gossip. So they'd, they'd say things about the Christians like they, they're treasonous. They said that about Jesus, right? Like he, doesn't, he tells people not to follow Caesar. He's an enemy of Caesar. And they said that about Christians as well. They're, they're not offering incense to Caesar. So they, they must be possibly violent uh, antagonists against Caesar. These are, not, these are dangerous people. They're a threat. They were charged, uh, they were charged with cannibalism uh, for passages like John 6 about the Lord's Supper eating uh, eating the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and they, they just take a passing glance at, well, these Christians, they're, they're cannibals. They're eating flesh and they're drinking, they're drinking uh, a blood. And uh, if you've ever been slandered, you know how painful that can be. And uh, it's, it's, it's one thing at the beginning of, of the slander, but as the slander grows and it's not, and it's not, uh, it's not stopped, boy, it becomes more and more uh, painful. People don't look at you the same anymore. And people don't treat you the same anymore. In fact, he tells them not to, be, not to fear about what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So behind, behind all of this uh, malicious gossip, this slander, this theft, this, these accusations is demonic activity. And this means that there are going to be some that will denounce them to the state. And the purpose of finally being, uh, being denounced and finally, uh, finally uh, arrested is that eventually you'll be put to death. And God is going to use even this rage of the devil uh, for his own purposes. They're going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. We don't know if that's a, an exact day. There's a lot of, a lot of you know, symbolic numbers. If you, you probably know in the book of Revelation, this is a, a set period of time. Some of you will be tested, and it will, it will last a certain period of time, and then, and then it will be done. And just imagine the physical and emotional toll and burden on these believers was incredibly uh, fierce. His message to them, though, is do not be afraid what you're about to suffer. Do not be afraid what you're about to suffer. No doubt, words of great encouragement and comfort to believers today who are experiencing this kind of persecution and slander and attack and lies against their character and against their, their faith. I know your poverty, but you're the richest people on the face of the earth. And if you have to suffer for me, great will be your reward in heaven. Now, this scripture is very old, of course. Uh, this is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And I think that some of us naturally kind of stand back and say, what do sermons to, 
to a bunch of churches in you know, the first century after Jesus, what, did, what on earth do they have to say to me? I mean, we have trouble listening to uh, you know, sermons from the 70s or 80s or so. They seem old and uh, dealing with different things. But on another, from another direction, this seems very contemporary uh, to our situation. Well, the, the level of, of, of persecution in, in, in the West it's certainly not anywhere near to what these brothers and sisters, others, uh, experienced. Certainly it is, uh, let's say, the, the intensity of, of anti-Christian thinking is definitely increasing. Where once there was a sort of an acceptance that our, our heritage in Canada and North America is, is, is Christian, a, a sort of a, a common sense of themes like, like sin and salvation and, and Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Um, maybe not always wonderfully respected, but certainly accepted as an ordinary part of Canadian uh, society. And I would say that's definitely uh, decreasing in, uh, in a, a pretty quick manner today. Well, we know, of course, it's Pride Month. You can't help but notice it because we're being accosted uh, from in every different corner. I... Um, I don't know, I just remember one particular advertisement coming up on, on my screen and it seemed like the, the entire screen, like we get it, like the entire screen doesn't, need to, be, doesn't be, need to be filled with that. It's not a matter now of just advertising something, it's a matter of, of compelling people uh, to speak and to act and to believe in, in a certain way. And there's a sense of compelling us to get with the flow of culture or consider ourselves enemies of the culture or at least how some would like to identify uh, our culture in terms of uh, what we worship and what we call important and, and uh, necessary. So I'm still a member of you know, these groups on Facebook, if you're still on, on Facebook. Uh, and it was a sports group from back in Seattle where I, where I lived for 10 years. And so it was a soccer sub group where you could, you could list if you needed a player to play one night and then you could sign up, you know, text them that you can come. Well, recently, I'm still a member of it for some reason, recently uh, perhaps thinking that maybe I could actually play soccer still. But... Um, and uh, there, were, there was a note from the administrator saying that when you ask for female subs for uh, co-ed games, you must say that you're looking for those who identify as females or non-binary. And then I could tell there was a bunch of comments that had been erased. Uh, because then he, then he wrote, those who, those who object to this were told that inclusion today does not include those who are intolerant. I mean, you can't say it any, any clearer. <laughs> Uh, than that. And the subtle messages are becoming uh, more and more insistent and louder. Conform or we will reject you. We will find a way uh, to push you further out of respectable uh, society. Now, some of you are working for large companies. I, I know I've met some at Fellowship that, that are really feeling that this month, where we're not to display images or stickers uh, means that you have to abstain. You have to ask to abstain. And that puts you in a position where you have to uh, defend what others are saying is absolutely hateful and bigoted 
and to identify as a member of a suspect class of citizens. Uh, one member was, was uh, sent a letter where um, it, it was very clearly stated that if you are not, if you don't find the, the progress of our company to your liking, then you should start to question whether you belong to this, this company. Um, now, I'm no, I'm no alarmist, but I think there's a pathway here uh, in which we, uh, we begin to pray in, in greater earnest, with greater sense of urgency for us and for our kids and our grandkids, uh, that we learn in a, in a deeper and deeper way how to stand for the sake of the gospel, to stand well, to stand faithfully, um, and to stand uh, with the love of the Lord Jesus for a world that, that, is, that is lost. And be willing to suffer uh, in real ways for the sake of of the gospel. Well, let me conclude by just asking some, conclude this uh, commendation by asking a few questions. Uh, Paul writes in, in places like te- 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So just a question, do you believe that? Uh, do you believe that when you live a life uh, of faithfulness uh, to the Lord Jesus and you're not ashamed, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in some level you will experience pushback from the world. Uh, Does your display of your love for Jesus Christ spill over uh, from Sunday worship with friends uh, to your life on, on Monday morning? Or do you feel that you pull back when the pressure comes? We've all been there. Uh, there's a clear opportunity to identify as a follower of Christ, and we, there's someone we don't want, we don't want a, a relationship to potentially break, and so we hold back. We pull our punches a little bit, um, and we, we're not valuing the Lord Jesus Christ and our loyalty to Him as, as we should. Uh, we live quite comfortably in a, a prosperous world, and it's easy uh, to go along, the devil whispers in our ears to be quiet, to be comfortable, uh, to stay calm. But Jesus Christ saves us, goes to the cross, and then sends us with the truth of the gospel into a world without hope, uh, broken and lost. Persecution is defined in a number of different ways. You think about uh, Matthew chapter 5, talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, men will revile you, utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. So persecution is not just a physical attack. It's not just being called in front of the state and being convicted. But it's, it's simply being identified as a, a class that is intolerant, bigoted, unloving, uh, full, of, full of hate. And are we willing uh, to suffer for the name of Christ. Not to suffer for, okay, not to suffer for being arrogant and unloving and, and, and rather brutish in the way that we defend the gospel or, or defend a particular view, but willing to suffer in some way for the sake of, of Jesus Christ and his, and his kingdom. Uh, and final question. Do you make it a point uh, to pray for the persecuted church? I think there's a, a clear responsibility here 
And Paul often draws attention to those who are in need in other churches uh, where we make it, a, make it a point to pray for the persecuted church. Look up the Voice of the Martyrs uh, website and you'll find uh, uh, countless things to, to pray for. One pastor writes this, uh, The world will always be offended by people whose lives and whose beliefs are an open rebuke to their own. Jesus said that anyone who wished to be his disciple would have to be willing to take up his cross and follow him. Well, the cross was an instrument of death. The Christian life, in other words, is a form of martyrdom. Paul even speaks of dying daily, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, as a way of describing a faithful Christian life of goodness and service. We die to ourselves. We die to the world. We die to sinful desires. We die to ease and comfort in order to live for Christ and his kingdom. We are actively to seek, as Paul says, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, because in a world of sin and death, in a world that is opposed to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything good, everything holy, everything eternally valuable is going to come at a price. Well, you can imagine these believers in Smyrna uh, frustrated and confused and struggling receiving this this glorious word of of commendation. So let's turn thirdly to Jesus' complaint. And the kids will be so glad because this is the shortest point in a sermon you'll ever have. There are no complaints. So we can move to point four. Yeah, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus has no complaints against them. It doesn't mean that they weren't faithless in some way. They weren't perfect churches. But in terms of where they were at that moment, there wasn't anything glaring where they were faithless or uh, lacking in love or, or uh, you know, affirming and allowing heresy as some of the other churches. So point three is done. There's no complaint. But last point, Jesus convicts them because at the end he offers them a number of promises. Jesus never, he never comes um, calling us to repentance and faith and obedience without saying, uh, here's how I'm going to bless you. It's not like, here's how you're going to earn this blessing, but it's like, here I am, I'm your father, and here's the way that I want you to live because of what I've done for you, and then, and then, and then here, here's, the, here's the blessing that comes from following me. And we need to hear that. And, and Jesus is, uh, is a, he's a, good, he's a good father. He's a good, he's a good brother. So first he says, um, at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you uh, the crown of life. And I see what you're going through. I, I, I know how you're being tested. I know you're at the end of your rope sometimes. I know how difficult it is to have members of your church uh, executed for the faith. Uh, you're about to go through, through some, some deep and, and serious tribulation. But your loyalty and love for me will not go unnoticed. And the crown he references is not like, a, like a, the crown on King Charles' head, you know, all this regalia. But it's actually it's referencing uh, that crown of... Um, of leaves that you'd see around a, a returning soldier or an athlete in the Olympics, you know, that garland around, uh, around the head. But while, while that one uh, will decay, this is uh, an eternal crown of life that will never, never fade 
away. And uh, we should pray this week that we would be faithful uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's deserving of all of our love and loyalty. And uh, why would we shrink back from loyalty to, to, the, to King Jesus um, this, this week? Especially with this promise, I will give you the crown of life. And then finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers uh, Nike uh, will not be hurt by the second death. Well, Nike, I have a shirt at home, Nike, that just says, just do it. I don't know if that's still their slogan, but that was their slogan for a long time. And, and, uh, and Jesus is just affirming the message of the gospel. Uh, Jesus did everything. And though you will be hurt by the first death, that's just a, it's a passing it's a passing struggle. It's a, it's a passing enemy. It's an enemy that has no teeth anymore. That's why we, that's why we sing uh, around the, the graves of our loved ones who have died in the Lord because we rejoice that whoever overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And when Jesus Christ comes back, and those who, who know him and trust him will not suffer uh, into the next the next life. Paul, Paul writes in uh, Romans 8, right? So the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be uh, revealed. Death is an enemy, but he's not, uh, he's not the enemy that could take down uh, believers. The first death is unavoidable. The second death is avoidable. Everyone here needs to know that as well. Uh, Someone here does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, has, has not come to understand the kind of things that, that Jesus is talking about here, uh, what it means to, to repent, confess that your only hope is found in Jesus Christ, that you need to come to him, he's the, the way, the truth, and the life. The second death is avoidable by uh, confessing your sins and trusting uh, in his finished work. James writes, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, it's amazing that in these, just these first two sermons, I know we didn't read the one to Ephesus, but at the end of, of uh, the letter to, uh, the message to Ephesus, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. So here are believers uh, persevering, the same promises for us. You're going to eat in the new heavens and the new earth from the tree of life, and you're going to have a crown of life that lasts forever. May that be our hope and encouragement for this coming week. Amen.